welcome to the COVID-19 Researcher Spotlight series. Today, I interview Dr. Josh Quick of the University of Birmingham, who is integrally involved with the Arctic Network, a collaborative effort to understand the genomics of viral outbreaks. Josh's experience began with Ebola and Zika viral outbreaks. And in January, the Arctic Network released a protocol for coronavirus sequencing, which has been widely shared around the globe, enabling worldwide genetic sequencing of the COVID-19 outbreak to help deliver epidemiological insights. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Could you tell our listeners what the Arctic Network is? Essentially, what the Arctic Network is, is a a welcome-funded collaborative award uh, between Birmingham, Edinburgh and uh, Cambridge universities in the UK. Uh, It was awarded to uh, Nick Lohman, uh, Andrew Rambo and Ian Goodfellow who uh, began collaborating during the 2015 West African Ebola outbreak uh, and decided to put, put the um, proposal together to, to, build a, to build the network. Ian was, was a, a established an iron torrent sequencing laboratory in Sierra Leone during the, the West African outbreak. And um, Nick Lohman and myself did the first nanopore surveillance sequencing in Guinea. Uh, and Andrew played a part in um, a big part in or- orchestrating all the all the data that came from those from those sequencing sites and and performing phylogenetics analysis. So that's really the genesis of of the of the network. So there's a, a large group of people, and as and a group, we're working to develop tools for for sequencing viral genomes during outbreaks um, to generate you know real time um, epidemiological data. We focus mainly on nanopore sequencing because that's really something to base you know the to base the research around because we're really interested in the idea of portability um, and generating real-time results because this this idea of a very rapid sample to answer time and doing you know and doing sequencing on site you know close to the samples is really the basis for for all this this kind of work why is it important to sequence virus samples during an epidemic there's a, there's a, it's important to sequence uh, genomes because there's a lot of, you know, useful information contained within within uh, genome sequences from viral isolates, um, and that's because uh, as viruses um, replicate, they they introduce, you know, errors in their in their in their genomes, and th- those are detected by the genome sequences as, as mutations. Those mutations can be used to reconstruct the um, epidemiolo- epidemiology of the outbreak um, through through a a field called phylogenetics, which is which is essentially building trees uh, showing the relatedness of, of isolates, and that can be combined with um, metadata such as the, the sampling date to produce a time calibrated tree as well, which you you might you might have seen, and that can that can be used to predict you know the start of an outbreak, the most recent common ancestor. It can also be used to model the evolutionary rate. So there's a lot of useful information um, from in terms of the phylogenetics, there are a lot of side benefits as well. So you can use genome sequences to um, to model any or to identify any signs of adaptation to hosts, treatments, or vaccines, um, which will also appear as uh, as mutations in the genome. But the main reason that we we do this is to is to identify circulating lineages within a, within an outbreak. So, for example. During the, 25th, uh, during the 2015 Ebola outbreak, I flew to Guinea with a, with a mobile lab and set, and set it up. And within, within days, we were able to show that there are actually 
two uh, lineages, distinct lineages circulating in Guinea at that time in April 2015. And, and that, wasn't, um, that wasn't, wasn't known at the time. And that's because there was a limited amount of genome sequencing available from, from, that, from that region. What we're really trying to do uh, in the network is, is generate data, you know, in a, in a actionable data in, in real time, um, which can deliver epidemiological insights. But also we're trying to generate information which is useful to local health, uh, health authorities so that they can make interventions which can, you know, hopefully positively influence the, the course of an epidemic or an outbreak. To give another example, the epidemiological findings that we that we made during the uh, Zika Zika virus outbreak were able to show that. So we, to, to give a bit of background to that project, we we had a we had a mobile lab which w was actually on a bus uh, doing a thousand mile road trip through, through northeast Brazil, and um, we were collecting samples in in public health laboratories um, as along along the way, um, but we were able to. Uh, Determine from the from by identifying you know the the most recent common ancestor using phylogenetics approaches that the the actual virus had been circulating in in Brazil for over a year before it was detected and that was because symptoms uh, of the Zika virus infection were quite similar to other endemic viruses in the region like chikungunya and dengue. So so those are a couple of examples in projects we've been involved in in the past. The current project that that um, that we're working on is called the. COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, or COG UK for short, and there have been a number of important findings um, from, um, from genome sequencing that have, uh, from this project so far. In the UK, we've, we've generated the largest number of, of genome sequences of, of any country so far of um, SARS-CoV-2 genomes, nearly 30,000 from the UK. And what we're able to do using that information and, and flight, flight and travel information was to uh, one of the, one of the important findings from the consortium so far is that there was uh, over 1350 separate introductions into the UK during March and that those were mainly from our close European neighbors uh, France Spain and Italy so it, it might be different to what what people you know have been expecting in terms of how the virus came to the UK for example was there um, you know a sort of a patient zero that that brought the the virus to the UK and then there was onward spread. It wasn't like that at all. There was massive numbers of of, of separate introductions, and we've been able to show that um, that you know locking down you know two weeks earlier probably could have prevented about half of the deaths um, in the UK. The other thing that we're doing is monitoring the the lineages that are still circulating now, even though we're on the downward um, epidemic trend. Um, we were, we're monitoring the, the lineages that are circulating, and many of those are now going extinct, which we can which 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 we can determine from from the sequencing that we the sequencing results from from the current samples. Why is it so important to do the sequencing close to the source of a viral outbreak? Well, there are lots of good reasons uh, to do that, but you know one of the one of the main advantages of doing that is is speed, really, because we're trying to focus on real-time prospective sequencing. Um, if you can take the, the lab to the samples, um, you don't have any of the delays associated with shipping hazardous samples to other labs. Um, the turnaround time that you can achieve in country can be as little as you know, 24 hours um, from sample, you know, from sample collection to, to, to a genome sequence being available. And you know, that just wouldn't be possible if you had if you had to if you had to ship the sample abroad or to another lab. 
elsewhere in the country. So it really makes a lot of sense to to do to do sequencing at the at the point of need. And I, I think that the, one of the reasons that this is not you know you know more popular is that people worry about you know um, not having that sort of lab infrastructure available. But we've been developing what we call a lab in a suitcase for you know since since our first outbreak response and it's developed and improved over time but it includes sort of portable isolation cabinets for for, for keeping amplicon contamination you know to an absolute minimum and even though it's a, a portable system which is actually built from um, repurposed hydroponics tents it is it's very effective at, at keeping you know contamination you know at bay uh, in, a, in, a, in a portable form factor so it, there really is you know, there's no really serious drawbacks to, to doing the sequencing in country, especially if you have, um, you know, a lab and a suitcase available. Yeah, so it seems like you've had a lot of experience um, in sequencing viral genomes. Could you tell our listeners how you got started doing that? Yeah, so um, you have to go back quite a long way. Um to the um, 2015 West African Ebola outbreak, which was when... Josh goes on to say that they began a long-shot project to perform real-time sequencing of Ebola in Guinea by using the MinION to create the lab in a suitcase, which was moved several times during the study, demonstrating the advantages of a mobile lab. Shortly after, the Zika outbreak in Central America necessitated a change to the single-plex RT-PCR and pooling protocol that had been employed for Ebola. They decided to use multiplex PCR coupled with native barcoding to achieve high throughput sequencing. But the sequence wasn't as successful, which led Josh to create his own primer design program. Which I called Primal Scheme, which is a, a pun based on a, a Scottish band, Primal Scream. I still <laughs> develop that develop that now with um, with um, another developer, Andrew Smith. Um, but it, it was inspired by um, AmpliSeq, workflow which is a commercial multiplex PCR panel and I was convinced that the, the success was was you know lay in the in the design of the primers themselves and that there wasn't actually any any fancy chemistry going on the one notable thing about it was that it had an unusual two-step PCR program which was you know which included a 15 minute 65 degree annealing extension step so I start. I went to the lab, started to fiddle with a, a toy, a toy multiplex panel, testing different conditions and primer, primer designs, and that was when I started using NEB um, Q5 polymerase because it allowed for higher TM primers to be used. It has a, a DNA binding domain, um, which which allows very high um, annealing temperatures to be used, and that was ideal, I thought, for the for the application because. I wanted a very, very, you know, highly specific PCR uh, with very little off-target amplification, and I felt that one of the, you know, one of the ways to do that was be, would be to use, you know, a, a high um, annealing temperature primers. So, yeah. So, but a number of the things that we that we still use in the protocol in the protocol today would, were locked down during that time. For example, the two-step cDNA synthesis using random hexma priming. Um, the Q5 polymerase, which I mentioned, the primer concentration, which I, you know, determined in the lab to be to be the best, uh, and the and the primer design tool itself. But so we were able to put all those things together and go back to Brazil another two times actually, and successfully sequence the, um, you know, a number of a number of genomes from Brazil, 
and it all and luckily it worked well enough to complete the project. Uh, we, another thing that we did in during that time was to to develop the one pot native the one pot ligation protocol, which was is based on an on an alum, the, the the Ultra Two Illumina uh, library prep workflow um, from NEB, which we've been you know developing and supporting for a long time because it makes such a big difference to the hands on time. Um, uh, when you when you use that in the lab which is you know quite important when we're working in the field because it obviously directly impacts the number of samples that we could process and we still use that now in a yet you know yet improved version so during the, the COVID-19 outbreak development on the on the protocols really started up again and we've just finished writing up a paper on the work we made a number of um, improvements to the protocol to to improve the performance and streamline it um, the double barcoding rate has now been improved to 70% using this one pot barcode uh, ligation uh, protocol through through tweaks to the to the conditions that's um you know a really really high efficiency of ligation that we're achieve, that we're managing to get now and that's while reducing incorrect incorrect assignments down to you know 0.001% so very very pure uh, binning using this this um protocol and uh, another thing that we were able to do was to remove the post PCR cleanup after with and replace that with a one in, with simply a one in ten dilution, which really which removes a, uh, you know a lot of hands on time and a lot of manual bead cleanups. Um, so we're we're now able with this protocol to go all the way from cDNA synthesis to to barcoding without without any cleanups. Yeah, can you walk us through sort of the basic Arctic protocol? Yeah, sort of briefly alluded to to the fact that it's um it's a multiplex PCR uh, followed by um, barcoding and sequencing. But in, to to go into it in more detail, so you start with an with extracted RNA, um, and then we do a cDNA synthesis uh, using the LunaScript SuperMix um, from NEB. Um, we were originally using SuperScript, but we've we've moved to LunaScript because if you factor in the cost of the um, the RNAs out and the random primers, it's actually cheaper to use the supermix. It also comes as a 5x master mix, which means you can get more RNA into the reaction. Uh, and additionally, it doesn't require a, um, a separate denaturation step, which saves hands-on time in the lab. It also contains a dye, which makes it easier to use and makes you know errors less likely to happen. Um, so following that, we use we use a multi we have a multiplex PCR using the Arctic V3 primer panel. Um, so we we use 10% uh, of the of the PCR reaction um, in cDNA. We use uh, Q5 polymerase for the for the multiplex PCR as I talked about earlier, uh, which allows us to use very high annealing temperature primers and works um, really well with this two-step uh, PCR thermocycling program we use. And we do two reactions uh, per sample that we're sequencing, and those are the the effectively the alternating regions. Amplicons which tile down the genome we put into two different pools, and that's to, that's because you you can't do them in the same pool because they overlap, which allows us to determine the sequence all the way along. Uh, but if you do that in one reaction, then you 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 would produce a um, an overlap product, a short overlap product preferentially. So then after we've done those PCR reactions, we pull them together to 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 generate effectively pools covering the the whole genome um, in one tube. Uh, and to dilute them one in ten, um, and what we discovered during during this this work is that the PCR acts as a normalization. So, no matter what the input, um, if you do thirty five cycles of PCR, the, 
the PCR plateau is about 100 nanograms per microliter um, post-PCR concentration. And that allows you to, to effectively crudely normalize the, the samples from one to the other, so, which means that you can just uh, take a, a nominal, you know, we, can, we take a fixed volume of that, of that one in 10 diluted um, amplicon pools and we go directly into the end prep of the uh, using the ultra two and preparation uh, kit uh, without any without any cleanup so this was what i was talking about earlier replacing the the cleanup there with uh, a one in ten dilution and we found that that end preparation is compatible with that dilution of pcr reactions that's really helpful time saving there and it's been very popular with you know with with lots of groups that are doing this kind of sequencing because it saves so much time so that so really now by taking that that cleanup out, we've gone we've gone from RNA all the way to through cDNA, PCR, end preparation, barcode ligation with no cleanups, just just dilutions. So that's really a, an an impressive sort of um, um, workflow, really, from with of sequential en enzymatic reactions all working, you know, all working together. So um, at the end, we've take all of the um, so another thing that we 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 always have done is. Use, instead of using a cleanup after the barcoding reaction, we use a heat denaturation to destroy the, the ligation activity before pooling them together, just so we can do a single cleanup there. And that's something we've done since the um, since the days of Zika. So then we adapt those barcoded pools using the by ligating on the nanopore adapters, um, and then load them onto the flow cell. And um, Arctic Network have developed a, a well, James Hadfield from the Arctic Network has developed a, an application-specific web tool called Rampart, and it's designed to monitor these kind of uh, runs, amplicon amplicon runs, um, so you can see the amplicon coverage by barcode, you know, in real time uh, on the on the um, you know on the laptop that you're using to run uh, the sequencing, either the MinIron or the GridIron. So that's very useful. So it sounds like a really streamlined workflow. What countries are currently using this protocol? Well, it's it's actually hard to keep track, but I, I have shipped out over 130 packages of uh, primers to to people that have got in contact and, and requested them over a huge variety of countries, 30 or 30 or 40 different countries. So it, we were able to to distribute these primers, you know, just by sending out you know, packages by DHL to, to lots of different countries. And I think that's, you know, helped people to uh, get up and running quite quickly because all you really need to to generate these amplicon pools is, is um, you know, Q5 polymerase and, and the primer pools. And you can try that on your cDNA to see if you can you can amplify it. And then if you get in, once you've got those amplicon pools, you can sequence them using any, any next generation sequencing technology that you like. We generate 400 base pair amplicons by default so you can either sequence that using a 2x250 on Illumina or a nanopore sequencing. So I just wanted to ask as you're looking at the genetics of each of these individual viral strains and you're seeing these mutations I imagine some of them are fleeting and, and some of them are more persistent and you might see multiple sort of major strains that emerge um, from this work. I'm curious as to what the implications of those genetic differences are in those um, in those major strains are. You know, can you then correlate those genetic differences to things like the rate of contagion or or perhaps the degree to which um, people become sick from the virus? Could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question, and and you you rightly point out that the that many of the vi uh, many of the mutations which occur are neutral have have no effect phenotypically 
And even though we can detect them with genome sequencing, they, they, they appear as mutation in the genome. Um, but, but obviously, one of the things you can do by doing this type of surveillance is monitor for, for these kind of changes, which do have an effect. And, um, and within the consortium, it was reported that there was that these two genotypes, they're called 614D and 614G for the, for the amino acid change, um, had differences um, in transmission rate and pathogenicity. And one of the things we were able to do was um, to investigate that by looking at the two, uh, the prevalence of, the, of, the, uh, of those two genotypes um, within the UK data set and show that actually there is, there is signal there showing that, that, what, that they do have uh, slightly different ep uh, epidemic growth rates. I mean, the other way of confirming that finding is in the lab looking at that. But yeah, it's also it's also possible to, to observe that using the national scale, um, you know, genome sequencing data. Thanks so much for joining me today, Josh. Oh, it's been great to, to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the COVID-19 Researcher Spotlight series. Join us next time when I interview three scientists who are members of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tune in to hear how Eric Chow, Amy Chrysler, and Emily Crawford are working together to bring reliable testing and genomic sequencing to Californians.